You are listening to Share a Slice with Sean. Wait, 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 wait. You, you videotaped, videotaped last, last night? night? What? So, okay, what happened next? Why are you naked? Ah! Well, do you have any ideas to what side is, uh, or... Yes. Do you want to be like me? No. Don't you love me? Maybe. Not? Okay. Kisses and Karens. Please! Get it! Get it! Yeah! 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 Like, never! You were just listening to part of the trailer for the film Kisses and Caroms, and that's by today's guest, Vince Roca. And uh, he made this movie in the early 2000s. He did this in five days and spent $11,000, and it went on to gross a million dollars in video sales. This is an amazing story, considering how hard it is these days to produce uh, anything and have it make any money at all. So on this episode, we're going to be hearing his story. He's going to be telling us a little bit about the movie itself and then tell us really a more in-depth sort of story about the quest or adventure he went on where he, he just nearly lost everything trying to get this movie out there so people could see it. And uh, we'll also learn a little bit about what he learned along the way. So... The format of this show is a little bit different than others. There's quite a bit less back and forth. Uh, mostly we're going to be hearing uh, Vince himself tell us about his struggle. So without further ado, uh, let's uh, jump right into our interview. Carom really means two objects bouncing off of each other. Um, but uh, a kiss is, is two balls tapping each other. The balls just, you know, kissed. And when they carom, they bounce off of each other. But there's carom billiards that's been around for a long time. And it's uh, so kisses and caroms refers to the characters that, um, you know, they bump into each other and they bounce off of each other. It starts out after some kisses and caroms, I guess, that happened right. the previous night. So the, it's a, uh, it's, uh, a trio, uh, uh, the main character, well, there is no main character, I guess, the, the guy, the boyfriend, and uh, his girlfriend, and, uh, you know, a friend uh, of friend. the two. It opens in a threesome, yeah. Uh, you got you to gotta grab them right from the beginning and then uh, keep that momentum going. So uh, right off the bat, we, have, we, we start with a threesome in the movie. We start on the beach, beautiful scene, uh, and then we're in a bedroom, and it's the morning after a threesome. And then uh, roughly every 10 minutes of the movie, uh, something titillating, whether it's uh, uh, boobs or uh, bra or you know something happens. Because I, I figured if my jokes couldn't keep people interested, uh, when they'd started to lose interest after about 10 minutes, they would see some skin and they would, their interest would be renewed. And, you know, it worked. Uh, the movie, I made the movie in 2003. Uh, the movie got released and, uh, you know, got up to, I think as high as, I don't remember, it was 56 or 58 on IMDb's movie meter. Um, it, uh, it grossed over a million dollars on home video and it maintains about a 5.0 on IMDb. 
And that to me, it means a lot. It's, it, I mean, it's better than glitter. It's better than, you know, a lot of movies that they certainly spent millions of dollars on. We made this thing in five days for $11,000 and we maintain a 5.0. So for first feature and it to be middle of the road and, you know, some people, some people say it's their favorite movie, not many, but, uh, you know, I sent a, when the Iraqi war was going on, I sent a bunch of copies to Iraq and I got a email from a soldier that basically said, uh, you know, we're out here in the middle of nowhere and it's really nice and refreshing to, you know, laugh for a moment. And I thought, well, that, I mean, that makes the whole thing worth it. Screw anybody and anybody who, uh, who thinks that it sucks, who, it, it, whatever, you know. One of the second characters, I now remember the names now, I should have written them down, but he lost his ring in, in the oh, toilet. Eddie, yeah, Eddie, in, early on in the movie, drops his ring in the toilet before he flushes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you have this sort of gag going on in that. And these are like gags that I noticed were interspaced within the film just to like sort of, as you say, tap different levels of interest. Like people, some people might be interested in the ROM part. Other people might be interested in the COM part of the ROM right. DOM. Uh, it is, it, I wouldn't say that those were put in there like a strategy of trying to pepper that throughout. Keeping nudity, bringing nudity back or something sexy w w definitely was. But um, in pacing the script out and going, hmm, we, we, need, a, we need them to be in, her to be in her bra and them change shirts here because, uh, you know, we need to keep people interested, keep baiting them. But uh, Kisses and Caroms is very much, it's a style that, has now become a lot more accepted. Uh, you know, Bridesmaids is a, is a story about people that has a very dramatic story to it. And I don't mean it's a drama, but, you know, it has a very dramatic story to it. But then there's a girl with diarrhea in her wedding dress in the middle of the street. Um, Judd has done a great job of marrying those two, as opposed to The Hangover, uh, Todd Phillips. That's, that movie is just funny wall to wall. And there is a story there, but the, there's no story about like people evolving or, you know, relationships growing or things like that. It's just we need to find our friend and all this crazy crap that we got into. So that's more of like a, a slapstick with gross stuff that happens in it. And I mean, what I tried making and even you go look at clerks and you've got, you know, she sucked 37 dicks in a row. Uh, you take a story of people and then you you have the absurdity of life of people picking their nose and doing crazy things, pooing diarrhea in the middle of the street. I feel like that's a real thing and that's really fun to have. Um, and it's something that like Judd's movies have done a really good job of of integrating, um, of, of morphing into, of becoming. But uh, but that I, I would say that that was my sensibility, and that was what we were trying for, and that's probably why I love Judd stuff so much today. You're talking about is, Judd, it's, Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. Right, right. Yeah, okay. Judd Apatow. Uh, knocked up, 40-year-old virgin, virgin, virgin um, freaks and geeks. Uh, you know, all of his movies uh, definitely have very good stories, but then there's great, the girls on HBO um, had some absolutely disgusting things uh tampons and and crap going on and but was a real story about real people but that stuff happens though i have a friend uh, who uh tells this story it's pretty gross i guess but he actually went to a job interview and he was there and he he had to take an enormous crap so he went into the <laughs> bathroom and he took this enormous crap and then he went to flush it 
<laughs> and it wasn't it was wasn't going down and the toilet was actually about to overflow so mm-hmm. he freaking knelt down and uh, this is so gross for most of my listeners but he went in there with his hands and he started ah. chopping the turd up and pushing it in so it wouldn't flood the bathroom right cuz he's like he's at a job interview my god he's like i can't have awesome. this happen i know it's, it actually belongs in a movie maybe but Can i mean um you know what i don't think he did <laughs> But he he needed the job, but this stuff kind of stuff just happens. And I, sure. I mean, I read I read a review of that movie, and one reviewer was like, "Oh, this is disgusting gag about the the ring on, and you actually see the crap. You, you don't really see you, you see like a right. few little things here, but like you compare that to real life. I mean, I think we've all got real life situations kind of like that sure in in caddyshack he you know eats the baby ruth and i actually think the chocolate that we put on the ring in kisses and caroms was from a baby ruth Uh, (laughs) yeah but uh i mean the scene that you talk what you were just describing in along came polly uh ben stiller's on a date with jennifer aniston he has to take a crap because they ate indian food right plugs up her toilet and then he ends up grabbing her boobies or her her, uh, bubbies or whatever her grandmother's uh baby blanket that he's trying to clean up the toilet with or whatever uh yeah it just goes catastrophically wrong i love that i love that when i cracked up when you told me the story i love that and when real life turns that way so kisses and caroms it's this it's very much this chick flick with disgusting guy humor that happens in it because even though the movie's about a threesome it's about the relationship between zach and jennifer yeah um, the the log line or the ta- the log line is a uh, a girl arrange let's see if i can remember this after all these years a girl arranges a threesome to show the girl arranges a threesome to show her boyfriend that she's the girl of his dreams, but blinded by his penis, he believes their relationship is best left alone. Through the antics of offbeat characters at a billiard pro shop, he realizes all his fantasies in her. Or is it too late? Or something like that. Even though it's, you know, only $11,000, I'd put it as like sort of a micro-budget film, the acting's actually pretty darn good. And the the topics that you cover in the film... You know, these ideas of um, of exploration of relationships, dealing with the fallout after a threesome, uh, you know, they're working their way through why the threesome happened and and all of these things. Like, it, it struck me as being almost a, like an art film in some points, just the, the series of the topics inter, interleaved with sort of the, the really goofy gags, you know? Uh, it definitely comes from the perspective of a guy who uh, loves big budget Hollywood comedies, but saw what Kevin Smith was doing and said, if that idiot can do that, then I can do it too. There is a clerk's feel about the movie. Um, there's a few you know, homages to Kevin and uh, uh, Kevin had let us use movies uh, in the movie. I got permission from him b- before that to use movies delivering pizza in the movie. Um, so there is a similarity to that art house, Kevin, black and white. Uh, but I mean, Kevin, I think clearly is also a guy who grew up loving big budget comedies, but he watched uh, Slackers and went, if that idiot can do it, then I can do it. So I feel like that's, I mean, that's the domino effect is, is uh, you see, you see Robert Rodriguez do it and you go, well, if that idiot can do it, 
then why can't I? And that tends to have a feel. You, uh, you look at, uh, what the hell is the movie? Uh, Swimming with Sharks, who he was influenced by Rodriguez and El Mariachi. And El Mariachi is the $7,000 black and white, um, gritty, low budget, low, low rent. I'm not even going to use, I mean, it's low budget of seven grand, but it's like this low rent action movie in Mexico, almost spaghetti Western-ish. And Swimming with Sharks is a much more polished office movie. But if you watch Swimming with Sharks, you'll go, that dude dug El Mariachi. Like I can see that there's sort of a, a mess to it. Um, and, yeah. and I don't mean to say either of those things disparagingly because swimming with sharks is an amazing movie. And, uh, El Mariachi is fantastic. What he pulled off for seven grand, even without seven grand, El Mariachi is fantastic. What he just managed to pull off. I don't think you could do that today because YouTube's made its way into Mexico. Back then that guy was running around with a camera and, had these crazy ideas and people were just like to Robert Rodriguez. Sure. You, yep. You want to film here? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Um, now there's this whole, Oh no, you're going to put this on the internet and we might look bad and who knows where this is going to go. You're going to make money off of it. We need to get paid. It is infinitely harder to make a movie and get people on board today. Despite the technology making it, infinitely cheaper and easier yeah, much easier the the mindset of trying to get people on board is so much more difficult today um i used to say like here in california i've born and raised here my entire life uh, we see signs that filming is happening or we see trailers and we get pissed off because it's just going to be a traffic jam and it's just like damn it why are they here but you go to middle America and or to Canada and, you know, some star wagon trailers pull up and they're shooting a movie and the whole town's like, oh, my God, let's bake them some muffins and let's go down. And this is yeah, fantastic. big time, big time. And today in the past, you know, 20 years of the YouTube generation, that is diminished somewhat because a big Hollywood studio could be shooting on an iPhone and a YouTuber could be shooting on an iPhone. So you really don't know what a production is, is coming into town and are they going to leave a mess and who are these people and whatnot. So you walk into a business and, you know, a car dealership in Ohio and you're like, hey, can we shoot a scene here? And 20 years ago, they'd be like, oh, my God, you're from Hollywood. You want to shoot? That's fantastic. Today, they're like, get the hell out. I know you're going to ruin my business. Go away. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a it's a weird change in like the mindset today versus uh things are easier to make but they're harder to get done the level of entry has gone down so far that you know just anybody can can try to get in on the ground floor i guess right versus 10 and, years ago and that's made it near impossible to try and make a living at independent film today and and uh uh, you recently interviewed Lloyd Kaufman, who I'm sure had a lot of things to say about. Oh, you know, yeah. It is you you can't just make a movie and throw Ray Liotta in it. And, you know, you're going to make back your half a million dollar budget anymore. Um, now you got to make that movie for, you know, twenty thousand dollars put Ray Liotta in it and pray to God that by the time it ends up in Redbox and on Netflix, you've made fifty thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's absurd. And, and what you're really hoping for is Sharknado. You're hoping that this thing turns into something which breeds, like, 
you can no longer make clerks or El Mariachi is not a crazy premise. Um, it's an action movie. Clerks is not a crazy premise. It's a, it's a guy at work. Uh, Slackers, absolutely not a crazy premise. Just people milling about. Today, you can't make that drama, that, that simple movie about Slice of Life and hope that it goes somewhere. You've got to make sharks in a tornado and hope that people <laughs> go, what the hell is this crap? And I have to see it. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's a very weird world to, to be in today. So was that your store in the movie? Yeah, that's my, that was my store. Yeah. Back then I had, a, had that store for 15 years. So, so, so yeah, here, I'll give you, I'll give you the synopsis. I'll give you the rundown of, of how I, how this whole thing comes about. Um, I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. I was born and raised here in, in California, but I had, uh, no family members, no friends, nobody who was in the film industry or connected to the film industry. Uh, there was there was no way I was ever going to make a movie or anything in my life. Um, that, you, that was all about nepotism or going to USC film school, and I dropped out in the ninth grade, so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I got a camcorder and I started recording You know anything and everything. I would just shoot stuff. When I was 19 years old, I opened up uh, a billiard store with my father. He was he had always worked in retail, and uh, you know we took some money and we we put some rented a store and put some pool tables on the floor and started selling pool tables. But also when I was nineteen, my wife's parents gave me their old Mac Plus computer, hmm. and that changed my life. I fell in love with it. I tried to figure out like how can I edit my own videos? What can I do with this? Which you couldn't do on a Mac Plus, but. Eventually, I ended up with a Quadra 840AV, Macintosh Quadra, outfitted it with some drives and a target card, and I was now editing stuff for myself. And one day in the back of Playboy magazine, there used to be like these ads for all sorts of stuff and classified ads. There was an ad for these spring break videos. This is way before Girls Going Wild, way, way before. There's an ad for these spring break Mardi Gras videos. And I ordered some. I just on a whim, I was like, I don't know. This sounds interesting. College girls getting naked. Let's see what this is about. Um, the tapes show up. They're from a company called uh, GM Video, which actually stood for George Martin. I got to know George later on. And showed the videos to my friends. And they're like, well, we could do this. You could do this, Vince. You could edit this. And, you know, I have cameras yeah. and I have the edit gear. Why not? So uh, we bought a boat. I bought a boat. We went out to Lake Havasu, which is here in Arizona, five hours away from my house. And we just started filming, you know, what was happening. And you could give beads to a girl and, you know, she'd show your, her boobs. There was no YouTube. There was no Girls Gone Wild. Life was much simpler. Nobody was like, oh, this is going to end up on the Internet. Right, right. And, and there was no Internet, really. Uh, at that point, you know, you were logging up with CompuServe and AOL. And, you know, you couldn't quite figure out what a web page was. But it was just evolving then. So... I started, we started shooting footage, my buddies and I, and I started cutting it together and we started producing VHS tapes and we created a website and it, as that was evolving and created a, a membership area and we started selling these tapes and we, no one knew GM video was doing it. Another company, AMX video was doing it. And then slowly this new company, you wish came in and was doing it again. No girls going wild. Nobody knew what the hell our genre was because it wasn't sex. It was just like these naked college girls or high school girls. You know, you hope they're college girls. 
Um, but there was also this gray line, like if they're, uh, you know, if they're out in Havasu and they're drinking, they must be of legal age and they weren't doing anything sexual. So, you know, you were always balancing these lines, but anyway, I was young and stupid. I wouldn't do this today because I, <laughs> I don't want to jeopardize my house and my life, <laughs> but then I was young and stupid anyway. So we'd cut together these videos and we had no one who would distribute them. You couldn't get like a studio to distribute these things. And uh, you couldn't get a regular distributor like uh, a regular video distributor to take it. And ex porn distributors didn't understand it yeah. and didn't want it because it wasn't sex. So my partner, Michael, he started just calling up local video stores and calling up blockbusters and getting phone numbers. And we got booths at trade shows and we just started selling directly to stores and we amassed little distributors there's little in between guys for like the Lloyd Kaufman's back then for you know Lloyd Kaufman to get his videos in a blockbuster he would go through a company like Tapeworm which was a an intermittent distributor that you could order stuff from um similar to where a liquor store doesn't order their milk directly from the the farmer they order right. it from the distributor anyway so after doing this for a while, uh, I, I think we produced, I want to say, 14 tapes that got as high as number four, then DVDs that got as high as number 14 on the, uh, uh, the rental list, I believe. Anyway, I turned to my partner, Michael, and I was like, hey, why can't we do this? Just take out the, you know, most of the nudity and sex, add some jokes and make an actual movie and we'll distribute it to Blockbuster and movie gallery and Hollywood video ourselves. Right. And, and there was no answer of why not. So we went, both him and I went and took the Dove Simmons two day film school because <laughs> we didn't know we, I mean, we were making product, but we didn't know what we were supposed to be doing right or wrong or whatever. Spent two days in Dove's class. He beat into my head. The script is the important thing. I came home. Now remember, I'm a ninth grade dropout. I came home and I banged out a 68 page script that was all the essence and the elements of kisses and caroms. Handed it to some friends and family, and I was like, "Read this." And you know, they corrected my there, there, and there, and your, your, and your, and crap <laughs> like that. And by the time it was done, bouncing you know notes back and forth, it became like a 92 page script. I met. Another buddy of mine, uh, Jay, who ended up being the casting director and a producer on the movie, uh, Jay was the only person I knew who had any connection to Hollywood. Uh, he came here from New Jersey and wanted to be an actor here in Hollywood and had been on a few actual sets. Um, so he knew a thing or two about how things function. Oh, and he had also worked for a casting director. So Jay read the script and he goes, yeah, this sounds fine. And arbitrarily I was like, we're going to make it for 10 grand. I didn't know. I just was like, we'll shoot it in my billiard store and 10,000 sounds like a number. By the time we were done, it was 11,000. So we went 10% wow. of a budget. Um, and, uh, and we, I bought a camera and uh, and Jay schooled me. The reason we have such good actors is really thanks to Jay. Uh, he schooled me on, you know, how to put an ad in the breakdown services and uh, when actors show up, will you give them sides and they read? I mean, I remember sitting behind a desk with Jay and an actor would come in and I'm looking at Jay like, you know, I'm, am I allowed to give him no like what's a note? I'm allowed to tell him to read it a different way. Like, who the fuck am I to tell them this? I dropped out of school in the ninth grade. What do I know? Um, but that evolved. And I remember Nicole, she actually walked in dressed as her character. And that blew my mind. And she was also a fantastic, fantastic actress. 
Uh, Nikki Stanzione, who plays Jennifer, is on uh, hostess on the Home Shopping Network. Um, so that gives you an idea that you know she's definitely can perform. Uh, Drew Wicks, who is our the lead guy in the movie, uh, he does tons and tons of commercials and always has, and that's been his bread and butter. Um, so everybody that we got, I mean, they were they were people who you know practiced their craft and they were good actors. But anyway. So I decided to take $10,000, which became $11,000, and shoot this movie. Arbitrarily, I also decided we were going to do it in five days. Wow. We had two eight-hour days, one 14-hour day, but we always had 12-hour turnarounds. So in reality, it wasn't even a bad shoot. It wasn't like this crazy grind that just constantly killed everybody. Although it did take its toll on the producers because – you know, a 14 hour day there still means that, you know, we're there an hour before and we're there an hour after. And then, you know, our drive times and sleep. I mean, you know, we're only getting a few hours of sleep, but so be it. So I finished the movie and uh, our our first goal was to try and see if we could find distribution for it. And then if we couldn't, we would self distribute it. And I started sending it around to everybody and anybody under the sun, uh, which back there, back then, as I ultimately detail in the book, I don't know, it's like 50 to 75 companies. Uh, you had Lionsgate and you had Artisan and you had New Line and you had, um, you know, uh, Paramount and, uh, and Buena Vista. And, you know, they all had, you had focus features and fine line. They all had uh, their main, like, you know, they might be owned by, Buena Vista is owned by Disney, but there's Buena Vista. Um, Touchstone is owned by Disney, but there's Touchstone. You all had these different arms that did different things or different branches and stuff. So, you know, I sent it out to all these companies. Uh, and then you had these uh, lower level, lower tier distributors um, like Barnholds and Lightning and Polychrome, who, is, who I ended up going through. And I got rejected and turned down from everybody. Uh, you know, people would watch it. Some people would say it's not a good fit, which is a polite way of saying go screw yourself. <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't get into any major film festivals because it's too commercial, but it's too arty. It was in this yeah. raw, this weird line that festivals didn't feel, festivals felt it was too commercial and the uh, home video places felt it was too arty. Um, so there's this other tier or used to be this other tier of distributors that they had output deals with like Lionsgate or Warner Brothers um, where they would place product through those channels and those distributors, you know, they would really screw you as a filmmaker. Um, they didn't go to Sundance and pick up, you know, features. They, you know, waited for idiots like me to come to them and say, will you distribute my movie? Um, so I'm writing, I'm filling in the diary. I'm writing the book as all of this is going along and, and filling in like what happens each day. How many calls I made? How many people didn't call me back? Um, who told me, you know, my movie sucks? Who told me that, you know, I, and I actually had distributors who were like, going to set me straight. Let me tell you everything that's wrong with this. And, and which was funny. Um, so I ended up cutting a deal with this company, Polychrome. And also I had contacted National Lampoon. And National Lampoon was interested. And at that time, National Lampoon was a whore with their name. What they did was they licensed their name out for a quarter of a million dollars plus 8% of receipts. So they were covered. That's why if you look at that at around 2000s, there's a ton of movies. National Lampoon's Pledge This with Paris Hilton. National Lampoon's Jake's Booty Call. National Lampoon's 
Buck whatever, which actually had John Bon Jovi in it. Um, they would license their name out. So Kisses and Caroms, which I think today is a bad title. I would, wouldn't title it that today, but it, I loved it then. It would have been National Lampoon's Kisses and Caroms. And $250,000 plus 8%. So I went to Polychrome and I said, hey, can, you know, that Lampoon is on board. And it means a huge thing. Like your numbers go through the roof. You end up in every freaking Walmart because you had National Lampoon right. title. You, you sell a ton more. And I went to Polychrome and I was like, hey, hey can, you, can you do this? Can you put up the $250,000 and the 8%? They assured me they could. After several weeks, basically, they didn't have the money and they lied to me the entire time. All this is detailed in the book. In a wow. Wow better way than I'm going to explain. I'm paraphrasing and moving through it quickly now, um, which was really screwed because while, you know, I don't come from rich background or rich families or anything like that. Uh, I could have gotten $250,000 from the refinancing of my house, the refinancing of my parents' house, the borrowing from a few relatives in that, in that case, when it was like, I didn't. I wasn't taking two hundred fifty thousand dollars and running out and making some crazy movie. Like I was betting on a horse that was going to return the money. Like we would get our money back. So I could have put together the money, but Polychrome screwed the whole deal up, and uh, National Lampoon's it. They walked away. That they it wasn't. There was no. There was no bringing the deal back thanks to Polychrome. So I got, I got incredibly depressed for the first time in my life. Um, I became suicidal. I, I was, uh, um, I, I didn't know what depression was. I, I didn't know what was happening to me. All I knew is I hated everything. I hated everybody. I felt like I let everybody down. I just kept going down this spiral and I didn't realize until afterwards that it was depression and what it was. Um, I would, I would constantly think about death. I would, I'd be driving down the road and I would just think about swerving my car and oncoming traffic. Um, and not like, oh, I could kill that person or like it would even affect that other person. It was just like, I, I, you need this pain to go away. Um, and it's a very dark place. And I sympathize with people who do become suicidal now because they don't think about, they don't think about the, the possibilities of life and that it's so much better to live than to end it. And they don't think about what it's going to do to the other people around them or what it you know, what it potentially does to the people that, uh, that if they do swerve their car into that oncoming lane, what it does to them, that you become so self-involved and so mad at yourself, so angry that that's all you can focus on. And you just want to destroy yourself. And so one day, um, the TV's on and Oprah is on and she's interviewing some pastor or talking about some pastor who, uh, beat his wife to death, rolled her up in a carpet, Jesus. left her half dead a mile away while he had people over at his house for a party. Oh, I heard about that. And I, yeah. And I was like, how can anybody, how is this, how does somebody, what are you talking about? And this is in the height of my depression. And I don't remember if it was Oprah or a guest said, depression is anger turned inward. And in that moment, I realized I was depressed and that I was angry at myself and it hadn't occurred to me until that moment when I understood, Oh, I'm depressed and I hate myself and I hate myself over this whole thing. This went on for about six months. Yeah. And moving forward from that is where once I became aware of what, what was wrong with me, what was happening to me, 
I could come out of it. I became much more conscious of like, oh, I'm, there's no reason for me to be mad today. I am just simply mad because of I'm so angry at this situation. So after about six months, I tried getting the movie distributed again with, you know, I made some calls and I got nowhere. And I, I looked at the movie and I said, I, I would rather have this movie see the light of day than it sit on the shelf like so many other indie films. And I swallowed my pride and I called Polychrome and I was like, can, what can we do here? Can we resurrect a deal? And as much as I hated these people and uh, we put together a deal, a deal that I ultimately got screwed for. Polychrome uh, went out of business and uh, wow. filed bankruptcy and I ended up getting the rights to my movie back, cost me an attorney fees. By the time everything is all said and done, Kisses and Caroms has cost me about $70,000. And out of that million that it did, I've received about $30,000 back. So I'm still in the whole thirty dollars to $40,000 on the movie. Jesus. Um, despite it being, it was in Walmart, it was in Best Buy, it was in every blockbuster across the country. Uh, it did over a million on rent track. I mean, it, its sales alone, I think, was like $300,000. All this is, is uh, detailed in my book. So as this was going along, I was I, after the depression subsided, I started I started writing it more. My wife was like, you know, you should you should really get back into this, and I started keeping track of what was happening and the calls and that sort of thing. And, and I knew I was really swallowing my pride and being humble and going back to the person that I hate most in the world and begging them to distribute my movie. And I I documented it. I kept track of it. I also kept track of, of every number, like how much money we spent and production and all of that. And all of that ultimately became the book uh, Rebel Without a Deal. Uh, I finished the book and I reached out to Kevin Smith, which I haven't even really talked about how I ended up meeting Kevin and stuff like that, which is a whole other story. Um, but I reached out to Kevin Smith and I was like, hey, would you be willing to sit with me and talk about your journey with Clerks, how it parallels with my journey with Kisses and Caroms? He was like, sure. We sat down, I think, for like three hours, a one-on-one. -on -one, and you know, we talked about stuff. And so then the book has throughout it peppered uh, Kevin's take on things or what happened with Kevin. And then, you know, what happens to me in the next few uh, uh, chapters of the book. Um, so that was super nice of him and that, and that helped for the book. And then uh, I tried getting the book published, which is a whole other nightmare altogether. And I had went through the dis distribution on the movie. So I didn't devote that much time to the book after five or six publishers. I gave up on that and I just, I self-distributed through create space. Um, it's, it used to sell like one to two copies a day. Now it sells like one to two copies a month, um, which is fine. Uh, and through, through this whole thing, I love, I realized that Directing a movie is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. It was the most satisfying, the most fulfilling, the funnest thing I ever did. I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, but nobody hires directors. You look on Craigslist and nobody's like, we're looking for a director for our feature. And I looked at the other positions there. Producers often don't get paid or get paid on a back end. And the other thing that I absolutely loved doing and loved during the process of Kisses and Caroms was editing. Yeah. And editors get paid. Or editors work for free on projects they want to. So you get, as an editor, you're handed something and you get to go, no, I don't want to do this. This is, you, it's a bunch of crap you shot. Uh, this is not going anywhere. Or look at it and go, there's potential here. I can do something with this. I'll run it for free. I'll work on it for a few thousand dollars or something, whatever. 
And editors, you, you have writing, which I did, you know, directing is another chance at rewriting the script. And then editing it is the final chance at rewriting the script and, and making the movie. Oftentimes I'll ask, like, what is it that you've learned? Like, what's the most important thing that you've learned uh, in your trip, like in, in the trip that you explained to me during the podcast? Mm, what's the takeaway? What's the, uh, uh, what is it? You see Timmy. Um, you know what that means? You see Timmy? You see Timmy? At the, uh, yeah, at the end of Lassie, uh, okay. Timmy would learn a lesson. Yeah, you see yeah. Timmy. This is this is what happened. Um, what did I learn? I mean, I I learned. I I still work in the entertainment industry. I still love the entertainment industry. Um, I don't know that I'll ever make another movie again, and I'm okay with that because I make my own entertainment, and that's all I really wanted to do was connect with people to begin with. You you want to make a movie that makes a ton of money and puts you in that big mansion in the hills and uh, makes you famous and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that everybody wants that to some extent, uh, but really the driving force is just to, just to connect with an audience. Um, I, I mean, if that's a takeaway from it, uh, I mean, I, these days, it's Kisses and Caramels was made 15 years ago, 14 years ago. Um, I'm 44 years old now. Uh, like, all I want to do is hang out with my wife all day. Yeah, um, I, I don't I'm no longer trying to, you know, fight the system. I don't care who took a knee. Um, I don't really care what Trump is tweeting uh, unless it's, you know, going to get me killed in the war. But even then, there's nothing I can do. If Kim Jong sends a bomb over and I die right now, there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm not going to get out and protest against uh, let's kill Trump. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Italy for 35 days. And I'm going to enjoy my life because I'm 44 years old. And I'm not going to change the world anymore. And I just don't give a fuck. Um, unlike you, I don't have kids. So I also don't really have to worry about like the planet past the next 50 years. That's true. Like I didn't bring anybody into this world to be responsible for it, to go like, Oh my God, what, what life, what am I leaving for this person? That being said, you know, I still recycle. I still try to conserve water. I still try and do the things that are conscious for the planet because it's the right thing to do. But I also don't have this burden on my shoulders of like, I don't give a shit. I, I need the planet to last 50 years. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm going to make it to my 90s. Um, so I don't know what I learned. I'm at this very much the stage of my life where I love what I do. I, I do live in the hills. Some people might call it a mansion. I call it a nice house. Um, I've managed throughout all of this, I've managed to invest money wisely, spend money wisely, not live beyond my means that the wife and I can, she has a union job. So we have health insurance, which allows me to, you know, be good. a little more reckless and, you know, what jobs I take and that works out. And she also does what she loves. Uh, she works at the Los Angeles zoo. So, um, you know, I, I guess, I mean, my ultimate life takeaway is even when you're 20 years old, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Just, just enjoy yourself. Just enjoy the day. Like trying to change the world, trying to be, you know, frustrated over what is happening. Just be, be a good human and be the best you. And if everybody did that, there wouldn't be any problems. It's so, true. That's cool. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a good one. All right. <laughs> All right. I'm going to let All you right, go. Buddy. 
Uh, it was good talking to you. Take care. And until next time. So that's about it for this episode. I'd really like to thank Vince for being on the program. And uh, I'll be putting his website along with all other relevant links to uh, sampled audio, etc. in the show notes. You can get them over at sharesliceodcast.com. Uh, remember, you can always subscribe there. You can leave feedback. And uh, if you want to give us a review over at iTunes, it would be absolutely amazing. I'd also like to thank Tim Chismar. He has put me in touch with Vince, actually. And uh, in addition to uh, several other guests recently, he's a longtime listener of this podcast. So thanks so, so much for listening and hope you'll be back next time.